0: Welcome to China in Context, episode 19. I'm Duncan Bartlett. Throughout the European Union, a fierce political debate is raging on how to handle China. Should China be prevented from investing in important industries like nuclear power or 5G communication Or would it be better to take a more pragmatic approach, recognizing the potential that China has to stimulate economic growth and employment in Europe as the region struggles to recover from the pandemic? Well, I'm pleased to welcome back as my guest today, an expert with a real appreciation of China and a very clear way of explaining things. He's Professor Hans Maul, a Senior Associate Fellow at the Mercator Institute for China Studies in Berlin. He also teaches as adjunct professor of international relations and strategic studies at the John Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies Bologna Center. Hans, welcome back to China in Context. Hello, Duncan. Nice to be back. Firstly, on the topic of the pandemic, all the EU countries decided not to use the vaccines that were developed in China to combat COVID-19. What do you make of that decision?
1: I think this is purely uh, reflective of the way those decisions are taken in the European Union. And um, so I think there's no politics there. Uh, It simply reflects the fact that Chinese producers have not applied even to my knowledge for certification by the European uh, Medical um, Association, EMA. Uh, But in fact, I think in Hungary, Chinese vaccines have been used. And other East European countries, including member states, the Czech Republic, I think, has also been interested, at least, in exploring Chinese vaccines. So, you know, there's, as usual in European affairs, there are kind of two different tracks here.
0: So how much of an impact has COVID had on the EU-China relationship?
1: Uh, The uh, COVID pandemic has been one of several factors that has contributed to Uh, affecting negatively the image of China in Europe. Uh, Other issues have been repression in Xinjiang of the Muslim population there, events in Hong Kong, uh, the growing tensions between the United States and China, growing pressure by China on Taiwan, the Taiwan issue. So there are a number of developments uh, in China and in Chinese foreign policy which have contributed to this change in the perception of China in Europe, but as usual, you have also differences between different countries here in Europe.
0: It seems to me that one of the big turning points in EU-China relations occurred in March 2021, when the EU was openly critical of China over allegations of human rights abuses against its Uyghur minority in Xinjiang. China responded with counter sanctions against some MEPs, as well as people who work in think tanks and even some academics. Is that incident likely to have a long term impact on the EU China relationship?
1: I think the jury is still out on that question. We can observe at the moment that there are efforts underway, and I think there are efforts undertaken by both the German government in particular, the European Union collectively, and China also. To, uh, to mend the relationship, to improve the relationship, and remove some of the sources or at least lower the tensions
0: between the European Union and China.
1: So we'll see how that plays out.
0: Turning to security and defense, the Secretary General of NATO, uh, Jen Stoltenberg, said earlier this year, the People's Republic of China is our number one challenge as it seeks to reshape the international order. Now, how widely do you think that kind of view is held within the EU and how does it impact defense policy?
1: I think that uh, rather critical view of China is shared by some but by no means all of the governments of the member states of the European Union. It is shared by the institutions of the common foreign and security policies, so the president of the European Commission, the high representative, Although there are even between them, there are sort of slight differences in views on China. But I think by and large, they would be on this page. But, uh, you know, some governments in the European Union would not really see that. Uh, and the wider public, I think, in most of Europe does not really understand this concern and share it. And if you ask, as you did, about the impact of that on defence policies in Europe, uh, frankly, I think they're going to be quite uh, marginal, if any. Uh, I think the changes you are going to see will relate basically to activities of naval units, you know, visits and more manoeuvres in uh, the Indo-Pacific and so on. But if you are thinking in terms of defence budgets or major weapons procurement systems and so on, I think the impact is going to be quite, quite marginal.
0: Well, of course, as you've made clear in this conversation, the European Union doesn't speak with just one voice because it's made up of many different nations, each with their own political characteristics. Some people say that China seeks to take advantage of that and spread division. What's your view?
1: I think I would uh, share that assessment. Uh, and there is uh, even a kind of institutionalized, institutionalized form this has taken, which is the 16 plus one meetings where China meets uh, regularly with a number of uh, Eastern European countries, some of the members of the European Union, others not. But while initially uh, there was a great deal of interest and even excitement in Eastern Europe about this uh, initiative, uh, recently, things have changed. Uh, there has been quite a bit of disappointment in Eastern Europe. There were sort of high expectations what the 16 plus one would do for Chinese investment in those countries and trade relationships and business opportunities. And those expectations were by and large disappointed. So uh, more recently, you can see that quite a few of the member countries of the 16 plus one closes in Europe have had second thoughts about this. and. Um, while uh, one of the intentions behind that for China certainly was, as you uh, suggested, to uh, uh, to uh, divide and rule, if you like, uh, to influence European positions through uh, special relations with some of the member states, that has worked only partially, and there has been a considerable backlash to that.
0: I want to go back to an important subject which you touched on earlier, which is trade. China has overtaken the United States to become the EU's biggest trading partner. I want to share with you a quote on this topic by Dr. Igor Rojeja, who's a lecturer in global politics at the UCL in London. And he wrote on the SOAS blog recently, in his view, China should be sanctioned for its human rights abuses. But he also said that it's the EU's own failings that are the original sin. According to Dr. Rajeda, corporate greed has made Europe soft on powerful authoritarian regimes. What's your perspective?
1: I guess you could say that in this way, but uh, I, would, uh, I wouldn't put it in those terms. Because, uh, you know, why should business be held responsible for this more than others? You know, governments, citizens... Uh, business is about making profits. So, in that sense, business, any kind of economic activity, uh, well, most of economic activity is about making profits, and therefore about what you know you could call corporate greed. Um, the Romans had a nice saying for that. Non olet. They said, "Money does not smell." So, uh, you know, you take it where where you get it. And I think it's easy to criticize business for this, uh, but um, uh, it's uh, it, it sort of doesn't take into consideration the the fact, and this simply is a fact, when you operate uh, as a business in China uh, or wherever in the world, I mean, you depend on good uh, relations with the government there. The government sets the framework within which you operate. And you have to accommodate that uh, political framework, whether you like it or not. So if you, want to be, you know, if you want to stay ethically clean, if you don't want to get involved with powerful authoritarian regimes, you cannot do business there. Once you are there, you are in a way caught. And it's really interesting to see how German companies are increasingly caught in this web of political regulation and political frameworking, which uh, uh, sort of shapes their commercial activities Volkswagen is in trouble now uh, back home and elsewhere because of the fact that it has uh, a a production site in Xinjiang. Now, this uh, production unit, uh, Volkswagen has, I think, 33 in, uh, in China overall. The one in Xinjiang was a result of political pressure by the Chinese government. Volkswagen didn't want to do that. And this is the way companies have to operate. You know, I remember from German history that, In 1938, I think, the two American uh, car producers, Ford and General Motors, had a 70% market share of the car industry in Nazi Germany. And Ford and General Motors continued to produce cars during the war in Nazi Germany. And they produced, in fact, not only cars, but also, obviously, military equipment. And those were American corporations or subsidiaries of American corporations operating during a war in Germany. You know, this is the situation of, of business. So yes, uh, you could uh, term it uh, in those negative terms as a result of corporate greed, but in a way, this is the logic of the economic system in which we live.
0: Well, that's a fascinating example from history. My final question is about one area where China and the EU do seem keen to collaborate, and that's on climate change. Uh, in the spring, Xi Jinping talked about climate change directly with Angela Merkel, with Emmanuel Macron, and indeed with Joe Biden. What's your interpretation of the politics there?
1: I think this is a really interesting question, uh, Duncan, um, because in my view, there is something of a misperception here uh, among many people. Uh, The assumption that uh, there is a genuine interest on both sides to cooperate on climate change containment for the sake of, you know, making climate change uh, digestible. And I think much of the actual diplomacy over climate change, the once you mentioned, the telephone call between Xi Jinping, Angela Merkel, and Emmanuel Macron on climate change was really not so much about climate change, it was about something else. Uh, so climate change cooperation becomes a chessboard on which particularly from the Chinese side, you have other motives being pursued and actually dominating. So in that case, I think the idea was to position China as the principal interlocutor of the European Union on climate change rather than the United States. There's also a question in my mind how serious China is about climate change policy and how open it is to be influenced in its climate policies back at home. If you again take this phone call uh, of Xi Jinping with Macron and Angela Merkel, one of the things China objected to and he objected to very much in this context was the uh, European Union idea of a border adjustment tax, which would reflect the fact that the production of goods produced in China for the European market uh, emits a lot of CO2. Then uh, an area where there is a lot of hope uh, and expectation placed is technology innovation, clean energy technology innovation. Yes, I think there has been already in the past considerable cooperation between China and uh, European Union countries uh, on this, but there's also an element of uh, industrial competition here, increasingly important element as these technologies take off and uh, the conquer markets on a large scale. Then the question becomes, who will sell the solar panels, European companies or Chinese companies, and therefore you have competition there. And you have industrial policies, both in China and increasingly also in Europe, trying to uh, support the technological innovation in their own regions. So there's competition here too. And ultimately, I think the most important question in this climate change Uh, policy cooperation to me is to what extent China's model of economic modernization through industrialization really is compatible with a a climate change policy which would get us to uh, even two degrees, limiting climate change, limiting global temperatures to two degrees, let alone 1.5 degrees, as the more ambitious Paris Agreement objective suggests. So, you know, is China really willing and able to do what it takes? Uh, I'm not sure, and therefore I'm not sure about the potential of climate change cooperation between the European Union and China.
0: Well, thank you, Hans. You've given us lots of different issues to think about, all explained very clearly. That was Professor Hans Mall, a Senior Associate Fellow at the Mercator Institute for China Studies in Berlin. This podcast is put together by the SOAS China Institute, there's more information about our activities, courses, research and so on on our website, SOAS, that's soas.ac.uk, or you could just type SOAS China Institute into a search engine and you should be able to find it that way. But until next time, that's all from us here on the China in Context Podcast team.